0: week's episode made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i-bankonline.com.
1: good morning memphis welcome to your weekly episode of meanwhile in memphis i am anna ellis and i am here with my friend teammate podcasting partner christy mullen good morning christy good morning you might be listening to us on wyxr uh fm radio we are here every tuesday morning but we are also available as a podcast you might be listening to us uh we drop this fresh episode every tuesday morning at 901 a.m um, we, uh, you know, I could just gab all day here, um, but I'm not going to because we have a jam-packed episode with an yes. incredible guest, um, but I will just say, Memphis, if you are baking out there in this August heat, uh, <laughs> as I have been, uh, I would love to di- direct your attention to the fall and the crispness that will be in the air and the, uh, lovely new memphis events that we will be offering you um of course you've been hearing about exposure on 901 day that's september 1st right around the corner Uh, i hope you join us at the fedex forum at five o'clock uh we will be having an outdoor kind of downtown block party celebrate your city kind of day so come join us Uh, and then i also just like to call out that on october 30th save the date that is a saturday uh, we are going to be hosting our next TEDx Memphis conference. We will be at the Levitt Shell. So again, outdoors, safe. Um, and this is a, you know, a good segue. We've got a TED a TED episode today. So if you're interested in uh, hearing TED talks captured live, join us at the Levitt Shell on October 30th. You can learn more at tedxmemphis.com. Um, so, Christy, I've, I've alluded to our jam-packed, amazing episode. Tell us about our incredible guest.
0: Yeah, guys, you're in for a good one. Today's guest is most currently serving as the Senior Program Officer for State and Local Government Relations in Tennessee for the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Automatically off the charts. Impressive and also really long and hard to say, but she is also known across Memphis for her work in education. Tasha Downey is here, and she is going to speak about truly so many phenomenal things from building stronger communities to education to talent retention and also just a bonus a little bonus you heard about the ted episode her 2016 tedx memphis talk poverty policy isn't just about better schools so i am thrilled to have her here i you guys are in store i need a something. shot of
1: tasha down, down, tossing down the energy today so <laughs> let's truly let's see it
0: better than espresso could ever be let's it's, go into yeah. the
2: episode <laughs>
0: Alright guys, we are here with Tasha Downey. How are you, ma'am?
2: I'm good, I'm good.
0: I'm super excited to have you here. You came in looking flawless. I wish you guys could see This is not a visual podcast, but she has on the most beautiful green dress as I sit here in my New Memphis t-shirt.
2: <laughs> I had my fitness clothes on before. I had my fitness <laughs> go- Don't be impressed. Don't be impressed. <laughs>
0: You're like, don't, don't let this fool you. I mean... <laughs> Well, this is, she she looks fabulous without any effort all the time. That's so. the thing. Yeah, I'm like, come on now. You could have came in here in your workout gear and I'd probably be like, oh, okay, fashion moment. Thank you. <laughs> but before we dive in, you, you have a long line of things that I cannot wait to jump into and mm-hmm. talk about. But before we get there, I kind of always like to tee up this kind of episode with talking about who you are. I want to know how did... You get here. What? What? Tell me about young Tasha. What was yeah. she like? Like, how did we get yeah. to this place? Start from birth and yes. get
1: us yeah, to this moment, you know.
0: and then we'll we'll jump in. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> I, I
2: always tell people, I'm Memphis made, man. Uh, Love a, that. A life on a life in three blocks. And if you know anything about Memphis, uh, between Crump and Walker is where. So Mississippi on one end, and then Lauderdale on the other. But then there's Crump. There's Austin. There's Williams. There's Wal- there's Wicks, and then there's Stevens, and there's Walker. And so I was literally born in a one bedroom cinder block apartment uh on Austin. Spent the first three hmm. years of life there. Then my mom and dad moved into a little two bedroom cinder block apartment on Williams. I spent the next twelve years there. And then my parents bought a little three bedroom house on Wick Street where my grandma my maternal grandmother, a bunch of cousins, aunts, everybody all lived on Wick Street and that's where my mom still lives today. And my father lived there until he passed away last year. And so that's where my community is deeply rooted. So, you know, I always tell people I'm not just from South Memphis or 38126 South Memphis. Uh, people from 38126, 106 and 09 and all that stuff, they they faking the funk, but <laughs> but I'm for real, like I'm the heart of South Memphis. Um, and in a life that, um, when we talk about Memphis and we talk about poverty and hardship, that community falls solidly in, in the center of that and has always for decades. But I think what people miss is that even in communities where there isn't a lot of money, there's a lot of richness. And so, you know, I remember being a five-year-old, being uh, responsible for taking care of the elderly in my neighborhood and running their errands and going to one of the five sundries or stores in our community, where all of the shopkeepers knew who my mother, my grandmother, was. They knew if I was running an errand for Miss Annie Green yeah. that I needed to pick up these things. They wouldn't let I, you forget. That's right. <laughs> and if I was picking up for Miss Hattie Lee, it was these set yes. of things. And so um I think that kind of community where I was an only child, but I was a little bit of a, a, a beloved, like a beloved little little human. I think people saw some of the some of the things that that make kids unique and special. And mm-hmm. I think people saw that and, and and tried to nurture it. And so that's kind of the richness that I knew. And so grew up in my whole life, went to my schools in my neighborhood, LaRose Vance, Booker T. Washington. And so in education, uh, I always say, again, the work that I do uh, in school transformation, right? I went to the schools that have historically been underserved. and and Mm underperforming in communities and even in the midst of that, that there were teachers and school leaders who were really striving to make great things happen for for poor kids. And left though uh, and went to high school at Central. Uh, And so the story of Memphis's separate but equal worlds, right, of being a Washington warrior for two years and a Central warrior for two years and understanding that there is a reason we have the same color uniforms and the same mascots and all of the same things because that there was some inherent, you know, injustice right. in the way that the students at Booker T Washington were getting an education and the kids at Central were. And that kind of shaped uh I think that's when the light bulb clicked on for me, like, oh, like it's a it's a whole different world right. over here. Uh of education in particular. And so then it was like, okay, get get your, get your life, get your, get, your, get your life together. Uh, and I left Memphis. I went to college away. I uh, had a great chance to spend my summers at the LeMoyne Overbound Program. That was really a game changer. I walked to LeMoyne College all summer for three summers in a row and on every Saturday and spent time with kids from all across the city who were first-generation college-bound. And so I think that also, in addition to going to Central and transitioning to LeMoyne's Overbound Program, really gave me a different view. Of the world that was and the world that would be, and so we right. had these great opportunities to go and travel and explore and see. Uh, and so then it was like, hey, I know I'm I'm out of here. I went to college, left, went to Clark Atlanta, thought I was going to be a journalist, ended up being an educator, uh, and then left there, went to graduate school and studied policy, uh, and thought, oh, this education policy stuff is is some kind of interesting, and so. That's when that's when the lights really came on and uh, left there, went left graduate school at Michigan, went to work in Chicago for a family foundation and was in charge of like doing a bunch of research and looking at successful education practices in urban communities across the country. And so probably for a full year, I just kind of crisscrossed the country. Uh, going to schools, talking to educators, talking with school leaders to see how are you working to get some of these things right and do them differently. And so, all the research that I did, we came, we put it together in a little laboratory of what we thought were really smart people. Opened <laughs> one of the first fifteen charter schools uh, that Chicago had. Charter legislation passed, I think somewhere around like a 1996 ish time frame. And so, wow. a group of us, former teacher, former state administrator, former state administrator, former literacy coach. All were like on this team to be like, hey, let's figure this out and, and create something really smart and good for kids. Uh, and that school opened uh, hey, in 1998 and has been one of Chicago's highest performing charters since it opened and uh, left there, went to law school, but came back mm-hmm. after law school, back to Chicago. That same group of folks that had opened that charter were now in another community uh, working for the founder of Land's Inn, uh, Gary Comer, and mm-hmm. literally was a part of a huge $100 million investment uh, to do school transformation, youth development, employment, you name it, like a whole community transformation effort. And uh, it has been an incredible testament like to this work. I did college access work, helping kids transition from high school, high school to college. Uh, and that's where I actually tell people I developed the, the superpower. Like my superpower <laughs> is I, I, I am gifted at getting kids to their thing. And kids yeah. means... You know, you can be twelve or you can be fifty, right? But, <laughs> right, like, but my gift is really getting people yeah. to their thing, right, and and helping people break out of what people are saying they should be or saying they should do. But what's really what's really your thing, and what's your superpower, and what are you uniquely positioned to do? So I spent five years doing that, left that work, transitioned um, from student and community engagement work to then school turnaround work Mm -hmm. so led talent acquisition for the district for Chicago Public Schools third largest district in America um, led their turnaround work uh, on talent acquisition and community engagement so three years on talent two years on community engagement Uh, and you know and I always say that is the one job that today we just not today but now we just discovered we worked ourselves out of a job right Mm -hmm. they had done the turnaround work there really effectively and of the 40 or 38 schools that were transitioned, right? Like now we have 65 of those schools that are going back because they are level one or one plus schools, right? Like, so um, it's like work that I look back in Chicago. It's like, yeah, I really love that work. <laughs> uh, and then left them, though, to go work at the largest charter network in the district uh, and did that for a year government affairs and then somebody said, hey, um, you know there's a bunch of stuff happening in Memphis. I was like, yes, I know. I I trained a bunch of those folks. They came to visit us in Chicago. Um, But I wasn't interested in coming back to Memphis uh, uh, because, you know, there was a, when when the work is the hardest, you know that there has to be like a real will to do it, right? Mm. So I always say in Memphis, uh, folks were long saying, well, I just have a broken leg. And I was like, no, 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 you have cancer all the way through your bones and your feet, your you and know, all your joints. Uh, and so I was like, by the time though, um, a small group of folks that started to say, hey, uh, you should think about Memphis. I literally was on a trip uh, in DC lobbying uh, for the school network that I work for. And one of the consultants was working in Memphis and said, you're from Memphis and you've done all this work in education and school transformation and charters and college access and student support and talent. You you, you should probably think about the work that's happening in your own city mm-hmm. and, and said, well, if you think about it, at least talk to a few people. So talking to a few people really made it the right opportunity because it's like when you think about the work that was happening um, in the late, like in the 2015 season, right, it had been like on the race of the heels of the race of top, Gates Investment, it had been all of this work around like we're going to transform schools. There had been the merger, there had been the Mm demerger, and I was just like, you know what, if anybody's seen enough of it Mm. to be smart enough to think through it with people who you know, you know are committed and you care deeply about the work with, um, I was like, I probably should think about that with some serious. <laughs> maybe I should think about should it with some intentionality, <laughs> right? And so, yes. um, and so, literally, after a few conversations, it was like, this is this is the this is the race I've been training to run my mm-hmm. whole life. Hmm. Like, really, all of the work. All of the work in Chicago was meant for me to be able to do to do some version of that work here in Memphis with you know the community I knew and people who. If you know Memphis, if you ain't from here and ain't around <laughs> here, they're going to make life a little harder. So yep. there was a need to do the work, but then there was also the need to have the legitimacy and the confirmation and connection to the community. Mm-hmm. And so those things were like the perfect alignment. And almost seven years ago, yeah, uh, <laughs> it brought me home, and that's I'm how I'm here. Curious, I mean, <laughs> as you have this
1: this deep experience in the Chicago yeah. public schools, but also, again, you've done so much work just crisscrossing across the country. Yeah. What do you think makes what about Memphis and both our what we have going for us, but also the challenges yeah. that you guys have been addressing for the past seven years? How is it distinct, or is it distinct mm-hmm. from the work that you did in Chicago or other other urban areas that are thinking about? Yep. education reformation.
2: yeah i i would i would say i can speak mostly for chicago and other places are a little more research-based but in chicago i felt like we had uh we had city leadership that was like moving like your hair is on fire mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so uh and, and and chicago is not a replicable universe everywhere all the time but we had a mayor who was like in in the late 80s when you know after a nation at risk came out mm-hmm. it was like this is the worst school system in America it's the you know cry of the drug epidemic we have to fix it we have to do something and we had a mayor who popular or not popular said well well damn it that's my job okay, <laughs> so right. so i got to do it right yeah. and so that was for him we're going to transform and create 100 new schools they went to the general assembly general assembly was like listen the mayor's going to appoint the superintendent The superintendent is going to be aligned with the school board that's also going to be appointed by the mayor. And so people feel like that's largely in some way feels undemocratic. But here's what here's what it was, a singular vision. Mm. Right. And it was a mayor who said the only way my city is going to get better and stronger Mm. is that if my schools are better and stronger, Mm. the only way I'm going to get families to move in and reinvest and be committed to our city is that we're going to we're going to have. We're going to have quality schools. We're going to have quality programs for young people because it wasn't just schools. It was, you know, an improved park district, right? We had a better park district that could support what happens in schools. Mm. We had better after school and out of time school programming, right, that could impact some of the issues around youth violence and around, you know, what are kids doing productively with their in school, out school time. And then also just saying like there used to be a world in which there were a couple of very, very highly effective and high-performing schools and only the most elite families had access to those schools with a mayor saying that's crazy we're going to make sure that there are real opportunities or better opportunities for kids across all spectrums and that's you know the diversity of a 650 school system right chicago went it's about 110 high schools another 500 elementary 550 elementary schools and saying that wherever there are specialized program opportunities and supports in each of these nine regions of a city, we're going to have those opportunities. And so it was the mayor is like, "This is what you're going to do," and then the superintendent is like, "Oh, the mayor told me that that's how it's going to be." What I'm going to do. And then the school board is like, "Oh, well, you better be aligning with either the mayor and the superintendent on here is what the vision mm-hmm. is, right? To become a high-performing, high-impact district and." 30 years later, you know, the consortium on school research and several independent systems of research have shown laser focus on principal talent, laser focus on creating diverse opportunities for students depending on their talents and their interests have made a real difference. And I think here we have the luxury of saying the city doesn't have any responsibility for schools and the the district is responsible for the district the county funds the district but they don't have and it's not saying okay and but then oh and what is our vision mm. for the like for the for our district leading and the impact that that has on our city right and i think that's i think that's one of the big challenges and and one of the things that we're just like oh wow and it was in my head, I was like, oh, I felt like we were moving towards that, right? Like, yeah. that's why I was like, oh, in 2015, I was like, we're going to, Memphis is on that same path. Like, we got a vision, <laughs> we're about we're to like, be the psych. city on the rise. <laughs> we're like, oh, this city on the rise. And then we're like, uh yeah no we gonna split these schools up we yeah. gonna make seven districts cause we don't you know
0: just like Memphis to keep you on your toes right <laughs>
2: like, wait a minute you changed the rules you changed the rules
1: well I mean I think it's so interesting yeah. we we talk a lot about education reform on this on this podcast in particular yeah. but obviously we're we're keenly interested in the the talent piece of that and yeah. knowing that we have to have great leaders in every classrooms but um, you know I, I think sometimes we forget locally that there are best practices, like things that worked that you yeah. are bringing here from Chicago to say, you know, I mean, I, I, it sounds like I'm being pessimistic, but truly to say like, we had a, a very large, like strongly underperforming school system and we changed it, we turned it around and yeah. like, that is possible here. Um, I'm curious as you know, seven years into the work, what yeah. is, what do you see as our greatest achievement so far and then yeah. on the flip side of that yeah. where I mean you might have already said it in terms of leadership and oh. sort of a unified vision but how what do you see as our biggest obstacles yeah. still yet to be
2: tackled so when, when I came here in 2015 right we we were just off the heels of the second note of when you look at our bottom five percent of schools right just so you understand in the state of Tennessee there's 1,700 about 1,740 schools and of those 84 that were in the bottom 5%, 69 of those schools were in Shelby County, mm. 69. Um, today, that number is more like, that number is 35, okay. right? And so, and again, I, what I always say is like, so out of the bottom five means, you know, you might be in the six, you might be in the t- <laughs> so there, So there is challenge to that, but what that urgency of, needing to do like people have stepped up to the plate both the district and the state have stepped up to say we need to do a whole lot more Mm. for children in the most vulnerable schools now would it needed to look like, right, is real supports for schools around social, emotional needs, real supports around trauma-informed practice. It meant also out-of-school investments, out-of-school investments, because that's a lot of the work that happened in Mm -hmm. in big schools, big cities when you turn schools around, Um, and then real investment in the development of teachers, right? Like, we had a strategy that was, we're going to recruit Lots and lots of folks. We're going to recruit the most talented folks. I came here to work for Teacher Town. Um, we're going to recruit and find them and convince them to come here. And we're going to be the Silicon Valley of education, if you will. When the truth of the matter is that there really is um, a gift in transforming and working and developing your own talent, because I, now one of the questions that you, if you ask me a different kind of question, the work, the reasons turnaround work was successful in Chicago is because we grew the teachers, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. like, we, like we recruited them, but we, we also at grew the base. them. Yeah. We grew them in in a residency and committed to support them over five years. In our most challenged schools, we had the most experienced school principals in there. We didn't hire first year principals mm-hmm. to do school turnaround. You had principals who understood community because you had to bring parents and family and community members along in a very tumultuous, challenging process. And so I think there were some of those things that, again, if we look at peer achievement, we could say in Memphis we move the needle. But, in terms of like engaging supporting community, building the bridge and the pipeline for stronger teachers, like that's where it's like on the other side of that we haven't we haven't built the sustainable components of that system, and so my concern i guess it's like what it, what didn't we do right? My concern is that um without having set those systems in place, we run the risk of those gains sliding back and so mm. and 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 almost being a little bit relentless around pushing for supports for teachers to be better, stronger, and then also acknowledging, quite frankly, teachers and students and families have survived a a pandemic. Right. And so there is this narrative about what learning loss means and, oh, kids have lost uh, lost all this time and they're never going to get this time back. And I was just like, yeah, I just want you to know I grew up in the 90s and we were the lost generation and our parents were right. crack addicts and we were the lost generation and we would never become anything. And and I was like, so I so what I need is I need people to, to actually give kids some credit mm. for being smart and resilient <laughs> and capable and aware that they, too, have survived a pandemic mm-hmm. and that. You know, if you allow them to be well, they will figure out how to dig their heels in and power through the rest of what they need to power through. And that's what I feel like is the next set of challenges, right? Like, how do we give tools to students and teachers to help them power through this really unprecedented set of challenges? And I think, um, and it's no fault. It's no, I won't say it's no fault of our own in Memphis, but I feel like we also have the, unfortunate, the misfortune of being caught in this crazy political climate. Mm-hmm. When it's like, well, let's just kind of do like in my head, I'm like, well, you know, kids are just coming out of a pandemic. Like we probably should be trying to figure out when they go back to school, like right. it should be a softer handoff. It should be a support. It should be an acknowledgement that many of our children in Memphis in particular have lost their grandmothers and their mothers and their aunts and matriarchs and patriarchs in their families, in their communities that have not only like supported them, but have held together significant swaths of their community. I know I have, right? Like Mm -hmm. my father and my, and I'm like my father and my, one of my neighbors, my dad was like the unofficial mayor of South Memphis. Well, the vice chair of South Memphis mayorship was this woman, uh, Eddie Jean Pickett. And and Ms. Pickett was everybody's lifeline, right? And she died of COVID in our community, right? And so I'm like, so the children and grandchildren who were in her house, Right. and the kids who live next door who always went to, you know, who were supported by Miss Jean. She was a, a school aide, right? Like, And it's like, in other spaces in the world, we address those challenges mm-hmm. that children face. And it's only in our poorest, most marginalized communities do we just expect unlimited resiliency. And it's like, we can't expect unlimited resilience. We have to respond to the needs that we know kids are gonna bring into the classrooms. And that was also one of the things that made us very successful in our turnaround work um, at where I was at the Academy for School Leadership, but in Chicago Public Schools in specific, in, in general, we were like, if you know you're gonna be doing this level of work, here are the set of tools you're gonna need in your toolkit, get them in your toolkit and address the issues. So it's, uh, it's a little bit different here.
1: Yeah, I mean- It's we're a little bit different. Putting the COVID lens on, on every- every yeah everything that happens in our city you know but it's so so uniquely disruptive for yep. education and for our, our educators i mean i can't imagine yep. being a te- I mean today we're recording this on the first day of school i know yeah. this is going to play a couple weeks from now but um i just can't uh, just the anxiety that i would be having walking back into a school building both because there's you are having to provide a, it's so much more than teaching you know you you are yep. you're hopefully going to be the front line of of helping these kids understand what's happened and helping them yep. cope with what's coming next and and at the same time just working double time to try and keep them safe which yeah. yeah it is it is not a task that i am envious of today but i'm thinking of all of our teachers today as yes. i was out on my sending lights. out on my sending morning run London i was looking lights. at all the school sending buses lights. driving by and just thinking like yeah. good luck
2: yeah. sending, lights. <laughs> yeah, sending <laughs> lights. yes exactly sending i'm like you're too. in my thoughts okay.
1: Well, we haven't even talked about your new gig. Okay. Um So, I how, how many are you? A couple months on
2: the job now. Twelve weeks, in. Okay. Yeah. So, like fresh, fresh, I'm fresh. Like, oh, I think I'm like
1: twelve weeks in. Tell us again, first of all, what are you doing? Okay. Yeah. And 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 why did you again make make that that yeah. big leap of faith and say I'm going to go do this?
2: Okay. Uh, so I left as vice president of the Memphis Education Fund April 30th, and I joined. Uh, The team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a senior program officer for state and state and local government relations for the state of Tennessee. So um, the way that we do policy work or any kinds of investments at the foundation are, you know, there are a set of priorities around education, academics, and that there are some, you know, complementary policy focuses uh, and so in Tennessee there's been you know huge investments as most folks know here um, in the state and so one of our so our set of priorities were you know equity and funding and you know getting kids transition from 12th grade to college and having good data systems to do that. And so uh, a, a consultant mentioned to me, hey you know there's going to be this opportunity, uh, the current senior program officer at Gates, uh, is, is leaving that role, has left that role and the position's been open. And we'd known the Gates officer. We'd worked with them. Um, several of my close friends are are at Gates. And I thought, yeah not interested in that because I'm already in Memphis and doing the work that, that I I would argue kind of matters the most to me because it's place-based. Uh, and so, uh, was encouraged though to have a conversation with someone and, and thought, oh, this, this does sound interesting. And so um, several members of the, of the team of professional circles were all well, pretty convincing and just kind of indicating, hey, that it is a continuity of your work, right? It's not a, it's not a departure from, but it's in potential to exponentially grow and support the work that you want to do because the power of having fair and equitable funding and what it allows uh, states to do. For the most marginalized communities, is dramatic, and so I thought that is true. That's a good thing. So <laughs> we, you know, we we are aligned in many ways. And I thought, okay, this feels like a good next thing. And so the more I the more I talked to folks about kind of what the priorities were, and had a chance to do a little bit of research to see what some of the organizations were, some of the partners, and I thought yeah, I work with a bunch of these you know smart, hardworking, ambitious folks already. Um, So it just felt like a good, natural kind of next thing. And so um, for the foreseeable future, (laughs) we are remote uh, because of the uh, ongoing pandemic. Um, But the expectation is I'll work between D.C., Nashville, Mm -hmm. Memphis, Tennessee, all the areas of the regions and the grand Mm -hmm. divisions. Um, But just kind of like crisscrossing the state and the country.
0: That sounds right up your alley just from hearing you talk about all this. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, for people that may be listening that are intimidated to talk about this kind of subject matter that don't risk. They're like, I'm not smart enough to understand policies and structures. or I just don't know enough. And so I don't feel like I can participate in these conversations. You are such a wealth of knowledge. I really am interested to know what would your advice to people who want to Learn more about these things, where do they start? Yeah,
2: I I always say, you know, somebody asked me this question in an interview at Gates, and it's like, well, you know, everybody at Gates is like, you know, really, really, these people are really smart, Mm -hmm. and people like, literally, like rocket scientists, (laughs) kind of smart. And I, and what I said to to that person, who was a brilliant woman who had a like PhD from Stanford and an undergraduate degree from Harvard, and I said, I put my lived experience up against Mm. all the research, I love that, and every degree that you have every day, right? And I think what makes me impactful at this work and at the work that I've done across all the years that I've worked is that I've continually and consistently taken my experience from the little old ladies on my block, from the hardworking moms and dads in my neighborhood into rooms and boardrooms where people's lived experiences are so far removed from that, right? And that their understanding of any issue on which they speak with full-throated authority (laughs) is second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, ninth, tenth, four hundred, thousandth hand. It's an article. Mm. It's research. It's an opinion rooted in very limited experiences, right? And so what I know is that even if my little mother has no idea of how to look at a micro or macroeconomics policy, and they don't know how supply and demand curves intersect and what that means for the cost of wheat, my mama still know that it is hard for me to afford a loaf of bread, and there is a reason why. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about the reason Mm -hmm. why, and then let's look at how policies align with that. And so what I always tell people is that you know when you have a hammer everything is a nail. So mm-hmm. because I'm a policy person, I'm like everything is a policy, <laughs> and um, you right. and, and I and I have a law and I have a law degree too. Yeah. But everything is not a legal solution for me. But in policy, uh, I always tell people if you believe that your personal choices are personal choices, you're you're deceiving yourself. Public public policy definitely impacts personal responsibility. Right. Like like this fiction of, you know, the choices I make, the decisions I make are mine and all the inputs. I'm just like you're deceiving yourself. Right. The foods you eat, you eat that because the FDA put it on a food pyramid Mm -hmm. and told you it was healthy. Mm. Now, what you have since discovered now that you have diabetes and high blood pressure is that it is not as healthy. right? Right. And so but a public policy dictated that the reason we have an opioid epidemic is because a federal regulatory body at some point said, yes, they are slow release and less addictive. So feel free to prescribe those things, right? And so the person who thought they were just taking good medicine for pain and being a responsible human trying to resolve a pain issue is like, wait a minute. I, It makes me feel really good. And now I want to take it every day. Oh, and now I can't get a prescription oh, and now I have to get it on the black market, right? And so I could look at that person and say, look at all of these addicted people out here, right? But I never came back any of those steps and said, what kind of choices... What
0: trajectory led us here, You know, you
2: hear your personal choices, but what sets of policies, programs, and protocols systematically influence that?
0: No, I think that's... You're so well-spoken about these things, which obviously you are. We just heard your amazing career trajectory. And I think you have a story that I find really honestly just inspiring because you show that the path is not linear you've taken many different routes and you've gotten to this outstanding place and I think the reason I wanted to ask that question was because I do feel some people are scared because they feel like they don't understand and they don't know how to have that conversation and broach the conversation and I think you and all of that with your career path mixed with how you just so awesomely answered that question kind of lead us into the TED talk you gave in 2016 where, you know, you set the scene a little bit about, you know, how poverty and the policy there isn't just about this one thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's about a trajectory trajectory of things. Sorry, I got tongue-tied. And so I just kind of, before we dive into that, I want you to kind of set the scene a little bit for our listeners. How did you decide this is what I want to give this talk about?
2: Yeah, it's funny. I kind of (laughs) cheated. Because I was at the first, I cheated because I was at the first, I was at the first TED Talk. You took a
0: shortcut. Yeah, I did.
2: I didn't reinvent the wheel. There you go. I didn't reinvent the wheel. Um, And so one of the things that happened at the first TED Talk Uh, first series it was really great thanks to Memphis for doing those Um, Derwin Cessna talked about Far Rockaway New York where he grew up and when I heard Derwin talk about that I thought if there is nothing that we need to continually remind people because Derwin was like education reform extraordinaire right (laughs) and because you'll hear this narrative, right? Like, we just got to create these great schools mm-hmm. and kids will have grit and they will launch themselves out here into the stratosphere, right? And once I saw Derwin's talk, I was like, yes, 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 Derwin, you are there, there, there. And then I was like, and there is a, continua- there's a con- continuation mm-hmm. of that narrative that needs to kind of be underscored. And so I low-key was like, I'm going to this this really in my mind was like far rockaway part two. Yeah. Right. And having this, this conversation, be because right, because it's far rockaway New York and people in Memphis would be like, well, that's New York. That's New York. Right. But I'm like, but, well, let me bring it right to Memphis. Let me let me let me help you understand it in Memphis. And and it's important, though. Right. Because what happens is people will see a Derwin or a Tasha and be like, oh, I know life is hard, but you made it. You made mm-hmm. it. And what I always like to remind people is and, you know at the risk of sounding arrogant, I mean, I'm an exceptional person. I mean.
0: Uh, agreed. I, Y'all, just uh, sit here with me. Uh, I was like, oh, I like, are you expecting right. a rebuttal because right. you're not going to yeah, get one? Right. Right. <laughs> and, and here's the
2: thing, right, and so is Derwin, right? And, yes, and, and yeah. so as we, as we go through and I look at all of my friends out here, like, in these, like, ed reform spaces and they're, like, superstars and they're killing the game, and I'm like, but we are the exception, y'all. And mm-hmm. I think people don't want to say that because it sounds it sounds bad, mm-hmm. right, to say I'm the exception. But, y'all, I can, I can affirm. I went to LaRose Elementary. There were nine of us who were above level, nine. From kindergarten to sixth grade, we stayed together. They, they advanced us in third grade and put us in a fourth grade class. But you want to know who are the kids who went to college, who got good jobs, who now are like families are well-sustained? that that nine Mm -hmm. like those nine kids of how how many kids yeah exactly of how many right and so it's like we built a system to ensure that the that those who are deemed exceptional in some way get the advantages so they continue to be exceptional oh and they also and we also expect from them extraordinary levels of resilience Mm. right to endure and persevere when what we really should be doing is trying to figure out how do we break all these barriers down so that you don't have to be so incredibly exceptional just to get to a baseline degree of self-sustainability, good civic engagement, capacity to contribute, right? And that, and that for me is what was the, the next part of that conversation that needed to happen, right? Like the exceptionality of it all is mm. what feels unfair. That's a,
1: that's, that's a great way to launch us into this. Um, let's take a break and listen to uh, Tasha Downey's 2016 TED Talk. It was titled, Poverty Policy Isn't Just About Better Schools.
2: I know the pretty dress and the pretty shoes may confuse you because I am a gladiator. I like to fight. From kindergarten to 10th grade, fisticuffs and knuckling up was how I solved my problems. Because I grew up in 38126, the poor zip code in the city of Memphis. And I'm one of the 23% of kids who grow up in poverty who escape. My mother and my father are part of the 42% of children who grow up in poverty and fight to get out of poverty the rest of their lives. So it shouldn't surprise you that I'm a gladiator against poverty. I've set my life's course in schools across this country to work to transform communities of failing schools to be places where children succeed. And from Chicago, Atlanta, and now to Memphis, we watch the needle move. We watch schools get better. We watch achievement gaps close by teeny little margins. But we don't see children escape poverty. Why is that? Because poor children are connected to poor brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers who they love dearly. And we don't leave each other behind. So if we're serious, I mean real serious. Like here in Memphis, where there are 191,000 people, of the 650,000 people in the city living below the poverty line, if we're real serious about moving those people out of poverty, we can't just keep talking about building good schools. We have to be talking about policies that impact the lives of children's families every day. Policies like early childhood education, policy like quality access to reproductive health care services, programs and social policies like impacting juvenile justice and transforming systems of massive incarceration. We have to talk about what it means to have a living wage. Real policies that impact poverty and I like to tell my own story because it wasn't just good schools but it was the social policies that conspired against our family even as we strive to get out of poverty. My mother and father, they back there, my mother and father have been sweethearts since they were 12 and 14 years old. In middle school, (laughs) y'all. They fell in love. And they had big dreams. Soulsville is our neighborhood. It's our community. And my mom and dad had big dreams of going places and building a great life for themselves, even as children. But four months after graduation for my mom, and five months after her 17th birthday, my mom had me, and my dad went to the Navy to see how he could capitalize on building an American dream for his little baby girl and his childhood sweetheart. And one month after I made it, my mother had a psychotic break. Postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis crippled her ability to take care of herself and to take care of me. And when my dad came on leave and extended his leave, he was dishonorably discharged and that cut our bootstraps out of poverty. That was our ticket. But my dad ain't no punk, (laughs) and my mama not either. So even against systems that said you can't have a husband in your house to get Medicaid and medicine that you need to treat the mental illness that is crippling your body and your mind, You can't get food, support, and assistance to feed you and your infant while you work your way back to wellness. You can't have two very low-wage incomes and live together and get support to climb out of poverty. Those were the systems. Those were the policies and the structures that were in place while... We worked to get out of poverty. And I hadn't even made it to school yet, y'all. And so, on the way to school, the struggle got even harder because I was a pretty bright child. But in my neighborhood, there were so few slots in the preschool program that you have to have cognitive limits on your capacity to get in. So my mother and my father coached me to not know my numbers, to not know my letters, to not know my name, to not know my address, (laughs) and to not know how to read and identify sight words at three years old, even though I knew all those things. But I really wanted to go to school, and so I didn't know my numbers or my letters or my sight words or my address or my phone number because I needed to go to school, and my mother needed to go back to work, and my dad needed to go to work. And so when we talk about being serious about giving children opportunities, we can't deny that the opportunities that we need to give children are connected to opportunities that we need to give to their families, to the people who feed them and clothe them, and who send them out to school every morning. And fast-forward that I went to school in the bottom 5% of schools in the poor zip codes in the city of Memphis. We were funded based on our property taxes at my very underachieving elementary, middle, and high school. And so when we say we will make schools great to give children access, and we base the formulas by which we fund those schools to give kids opportunities on property taxes. Property taxes in the poorest zip code in the city of Memphis, there were no homeowners in our community to provide the kinds of opportunities. And it wasn't until I had an opportunity to go to a school across town where parents stood in lines for three days and slept in tents and camped out and completed applications for a seat in those schools, that I got a different shot. And even after I got a different shot and a better education and a better set of opportunities, yet another system, an oppressive system of criminal justice, came into our life and our reality when my mother was incarcerated, just for being in a place where there was drug activity. And once again, my father and me had to figure out how to make it on broken pieces because of a system and a set of policies that worked against our family moving out of poverty. And so when we talk again about children and why they don't get out of poverty, even when they get a good education because I got a good education. In fact, I remember that it was 8,395 th- 8, days when I got out of poverty. I remember it was the first paycheck I got that was above the poverty level. It took me that many days. That fact, that was 23 years of my life to get out of poverty. Education is the long game. And I just think if we had policies that had enabled my father, to stay in the military and support my mother through her illness at the same time, or that if we had social systems that allow for my mother and my father to stay together and work through their poverty with the support of social systems, that we could have got out of poverty a lot sooner than 8,395 days. And in fact, I got out of poverty 8,395 days. My father worked a low-wage job until he had two heart attacks, And was retired on medical disability. That is not a way out of poverty. So if we are serious about this fight to end poverty, because in the city of Memphis we will not move forward if we don't move poor people forward in this city. So if we are serious our policies need to look very differently. Our schools are getting better. We've moved the needle. We are closing the achievement gap. But our children still need to eat every day before they go to school. So we need equitable policy around how how we give food to families. Our children still have parents who cannot be employed because they are previously convicted. We need policies that allow for people to go back into the workforce, to be productive and viable citizens. We still have children whose brothers and sisters and cousins battle mental illness and addictions, that we have no policies and no strategies. And so our children are left to fix those solutions on their way through their education and out of poverty. And we can fix that. And if we don't fix that, if we don't work for these policies, then we are fighting to keep children and their families locked in poverty. Thank you.
0: guys, welcome back to the show. If you are just joining us now, you are listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR live on Tuesday morning. And we are here with Tasha Downey discussing her 2016 TED Talk, which you just got to hear. Tasha, you came out of that TED Talk quite literally swinging <laughs> because you were like, I am a fighter. I will fight you. <laughs> like, Or at least you're I like, will. you know, like I <laughs> still missed, <today>. I'm still <laughs> today i misquoting maybe a little but that was the general you know sentiment so but you truly are this gladiator against poverty and specifically within the school system and we talked a little bit about everything you're doing because you have these and in, these ingrained and lived experiences with your life and so I want to know why was it so crucial to you and important that you come out on that stage and launch your TED talk that way?
2: A big part of it was just because I know, I mean, I work in philanthropy, right? So I know the investments that we've made in education. A lot, a lot. And I think it was very difficult for many people who work in education for a long time to be willing to acknowledge or to see the intersections, Mm. right, and to understand that you can build all, I mean, I I will tell you now, like the investment of upwards of a quarter of a billion dollars in a very short one of time. Right. Gates, 90 million dollars. Race to the top. Like Mm -hmm. all of this investment and the willingness to invest in any of these additional systems that would ensure like a long term sustainable impact on pulling kids out of poverty, because ultimately, at the end of the day, that for me is what education is about. Like yes. I, like I'm just not going to get smart. Like I can go to the library and get smart and read books. <laughs> Once I learn how to read, I can just get smart. My goal is if like most people to be able to climb if you grow up poor, mm-hmm. to climb out of poverty and to be able to afford a comfortable life for yourself. And that again, I always say that doesn't necessarily mean I need to go buy me a ten thousand, 10 million dollar mansion with, you know, 50,000 square feet house. It just means that I wanna be able to get where that Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, like off the bottom of that. Right? right? And closer up to the hierarchy where there's security and comfort and belonging and self-actualization. Like, that's where I wanna get. And there was this there's this unwillingness, particularly I you know, particularly in our political culture, right? Because what we wanna say is that people are expected to have enough social responsibility once they get education to avoid all of the other pitfalls that pull you into poverty. And what that does is that lets systems off the hook, Mm -hmm. right? Like, because there is a truth in there are people here who are really educated, but they are still trapped in low-wage jobs, right? There is still wage stagnation. There are still people who go to work every day and don't have health insurance. And so you fall and break your leg, even though you go to your job every day, you will be bankrupt, with medical bills, with the recurring medical bills, or you have a child who is really, really sick, and, you know, in my instance as a school administrator, a mom calls and says, do not call an ambulance. I'm like, I'm, I'm like, Miss Johnson, he's having an asthma attack right now, right. and I have to call the ambulance. She's like, Miss Taylor, do not call the no. ambulance. I cannot afford to take it to the I, I'm gonna come get it and I'm gonna take it yep. myself I said no you won't I will get in the car and drive myself because I can't let this child, <laughs> I yeah. cannot let this child die right but those are the kind those of decisions, decisions that right yeah. that people who are struggling with poverty have to make and if people believe that you know the, if the school board just makes good policy and if philanthropy just makes good investment in education that that kind of crippling poverty disappears they're deceiving themselves.
0: I think that's something that your TED talk really focused on that was very eye-opening to me because I've thought about it, but I haven't. You said it in the perfect way to make it really hit home is so often these solutions, these things are focused on the student. We focus on this soul thing. If we fix the student, if we fix what they're getting, they'll get out of poverty. Like that's, magic just sprinkle it on and it's fine but it's not just about that student because the students have parents or grandparents yes it's these ingrained communities that are still impoverished and so how do you think we go about making people understand that more and realize that it's not a one stop shop solution? It's an overarching thing we need to work to solve. Right.
2: So again, right? I always tell people: when in doubt, start with the start with the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? When in doubt, <laughs> start with Maslow. Right? Uh, start yep. with the hierarchy of needs. Right? And and who who do you need to respond to to meet the set of needs? If you, the hierarchy is is pretty clear. Right? Basics: yes, air, <laughs> water. Shelter, right? And so, if you think to yourself, "Well, hey, I can independently provide clean air to the children," Mm -hmm. great, perfect.
0: Check one off. (laughs) Clean
2: air for everybody,
0: right? But
1: but if you're like, "You get air, and you you get air," air, air, right?
2: (laughs) Clean water, great. Turn the faucets. All the kids get the benefit of that. Great win. But when you talk about the more complex systems, right? Like shelter, right? Like you need to have somewhere a baseline to live. Mm I don't care how smart you want to be about it, but if you're seven, you're probably going to need an adult to yes. manage that housing security piece of it. And so we have to have systems be willing to be okay to say we have to support a child and a family. That's, that's nothing unusual. Two-generation approach to supports is what, you know, progressive systems have seen be impactful everywhere, else except in some of our some of our communities right mm-hmm. so you know you're going to have to have a two generation approach and i think at one point the state was like hey how do we be how do we have smart two gen you know but for all the obvious political reasons right people were like oh we're cheating the system and we don't want people to manipulate the system and when the truth is right the the greatest manipulation of the system comes at the highest levels. Cause see, this is the problem when you go, you know, when you go to policy school, mm-hmm. you look at, oh, you're talking about the poor people. Oh, you're talking about the 1% of GDP that we spend on means, tested benefits, that part. <laughs> like, no. Oh, now let's look over here at these corporate tax subsidies, yes. right? Like, And nobody wants to do that mm-hmm. because you have to say, okay, we marginalize and continue to disinvest here where the people are most vulnerable and have the least agency to push against that? Or do we go over here where wealth and power live and try to make adjustments there? Nah, that's not gonna happen, right? And so you, you just a part of that you just will own, either you're gonna talk about it or you're gonna be about it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people are like, well, let's, it, we just gonna talk about it. And the nice thing to talk about is education like everybody loves Mm -hmm. education right like everybody thinks that's the great equalizer but you don't have to deal with any of that other stuff
0: no and you very much hit a point after that because you talked about your own personal lived experience right you talked about your mom and the mental health issues she encountered with like postpartum depression and things mm -hmm. and how that impacted you and I was thinking about that after I listened to your talk and I was like You know mental health issues is not something that just affects the like one percent of our community it doesn't just hire it's not a first world problem like mental health exists with everyone and i was like that is a piece of the puzzle that people do not think about they exclude that from the narrative when talking about poverty and how that affects things so to your point with people focusing so much on education because it's the cool buzzwordy thing to focus on when you want to change that thought process and that narrative to things outside of hearing personal accounts like yours what is it that people can do to try and help there
2: right. so so one thing i, I said two things one i think people just need to be honest mm-hmm. about telling their story right like there is a part of it that is like my mother i asked my mom do i do do you mind if i share your story right and, like and, and me sharing that story was actually on the heels of a young mom here in Memphis who killed her three children. Mm, wow. And I remember the story because I, I knew the mother. Mm. I knew her grandmother. Wow. And, you know, it was all the awful things that people said about this young mother. And I'm just thinking, do you really think people just wake up and decide to kill their children, right? And so, and so a part of it is just being able to give people voice to own right like the expectation that I'm going to be great and perfect and on point every day like that's BS Mm -hmm. like that's the Instagram social media culture of the world and that's just not real and so when you give people and and a part of me telling that story was to as someone someone once said to me like you are so comfortable in your truth in your own skin that you tell your truth and it empowers others to tell their truth and so for me it really is about empowering people to tell their truth, because if you don 't tell yourself the truth, you cannot fix a problem that you won 't name right, and so some of it is some of it really was just giving people me saying it so people would have the capacity to name it. but then the other part of it is knowing that we have a you know we have a state that has not expanded <laughs> Medicaid right, so we have people who have no access to medical coverage, like basic medical coverage, and then when you add to that mental health coverage is often out-of-network care on any insurance plan. And so the cost, even if people had the will to resolve their mental health issues or to address it in some really critical, straightforward way, the resources Mm -hmm. to do that really aren't there. And so that's why you have to name it, because you need to then put data and research behind it and then you get policy changes. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> i got it all the way <laughs> You get policy changes that say, "Hey, Blue Cross Blue Shield, we kind of need you." And here's what we need: we like we need the mayors and the governors and other folks to say, "Blue Cross, we're going to need you to cover more mental health coverage." Because if you cover more mental health coverage, you you know we probably have less homicides. Mm-hmm. We probably have less domestic violence. We yeah. probably see less crime if you uh, if you. Blue Cross Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna, pick a place, all of them, right? Yeah. Pick, pick a pick <laughs> Insert a, pick, name a here. pick look, name your provider <laughs> and said, "Hey, if we were allowed to address these health and mental and emotional health concerns, we have a real impact there, right?" And so I think that's that's some of the challenge too, right? Like you have to name these things so that you give our decision makers mm-hmm agency voice cover whatever you want to call it to push for what they know the community clearly needs but no one is no one is speaking for that
0: and working to get people out of this mindset like people that are in these situations have the survival mode mindset absolutely so if you give people the things they need the basic necessities if you give them things like mental health coverage and just just Paramount Health code. I mean, yeah. if you do that, imagine what space that frees up for them to do more. Exactly. And I think that is like a huge part of that conversation. Yeah. And so, a little, a little lighter, but not really. I kind of <laughs> you brought up this really fun. I don't think it's, it's funny, yeah. but it's not the inherent need for it is not fun. Your parents told you when you were going to school or trying to get into your school. You were so bright and intelligent, which obviously everyone can hear that yeah. from the rafters, and you've been that way apparently since you were a little. but they told you, I need you to forget, forget your ABCs, forget right. your one, two, threes, forget that you know your address because you need to get into this school. That's right. That had my wheels turning. I'm like, okay, a loophole like that to get into school. How many other loopholes are people having to jump
2: through? Well, well honest people like, don't jump. Honest people don't jump through them. Well,
0: no, that's what I mean. But we're like, really having ah! yes. We like have, desperate. <laughs> yes.
2: Well, how many loopholes are people having to
0: create, <laughs> yeah. like, to get and like enact like things, that policies that are affecting things like this? Like, people have to get creative and they have to make mm-hmm. it happen for themselves. So how? Yeah. Like.
2: I would, I would it's funny I would argue that that wherever the loopholes are people have to figure out creative ways. Yeah. I mean I'm a, I'm not going to out her but one of my <laughs> friends you know, the running joke was she thought, she, she's like, I felt like I was adopted. I found out my birthday was September the 4th when <laughs> my parents told me it was September the 1st so that I'd go <laughs> like to kindergarten, school, yeah. right? Yeah. When, when really what the system should have said is, hey, for you to have capacity to access this opportunity, mm-hmm. let's just see. Here's, here is what we are looking for you to have or looking for you to need. And if it is you need me to be, you need me to not be smart but can my parents be poor and need yeah. childcare, <laughs> right? Cause they mm-hmm. can't, oh, and right. can my parents not afford childcare? Cause that's really, it's like, look, we got this little child, we can, somebody go out to stay whole <laughs> and take care of this child, or we gotta get this child in the school, right? And so I think we are not smart enough or strategic enough mm-hmm. in how we create scales of needs of families, right? And that we, yeah. and we figure out how we respond to the critical needs of families and that the programs, and I get it, right? Like when you write policy, when you write programs, when you write guidelines, most people believe you have to be strict and adhere to those, et cetera. And what I have learned since is like, you know, there's always an exception and you usually can say here is a critical and brilliant reason for an exception and let's make the exception because we still wanna serve poor low income struggling working mm-hmm. parents or you know you know what i always was like well you know a big part of the reality was you know parent families couldn't even live together right like like so on record you don't have a dad in the house but i had a dad my whole life mm-hmm. but it's like you don't get medicaid well my nobody makes enough money for you to get full insurance so he don't live here cuz we need medicaid right
0: hmm. right yeah. and so
2: it's just like you know the the reverse and perverse incentives is what we you know it's what we call those okay. kind of in a policy environment, right? It's like you give me a disincentive to be hardworking and go mm-hmm. to school because all of these things that I also need to survive. You will say again, you make now minimum wage seven twenty five. If you make eight twenty five, you don't you don't qualify for a child care subsidy. Well, <laughs> well, okay. Well, I can't I can't go to this eight dollar an hour right. job. If I don't have
0: where I could go expense. to seven twenty-five an hour, show me that and dollar still, an hour yeah. daycare and right? And show
2: me the dollar an hour daycare rate right? versus saying, "Hey, here is the here is the need we are trying to fulfill. Here is what the characteristics of populations could look like. Here is the here are the absolutes. Here are the possibilities and the flexibilities in those systems, and." I mean, because it's, you know, 'cause in my head I'm like, you know it's all quantifiable, right? You run my Social Security, though, but you can see how much money I make. You can see where I live. You see I live at 38126. You see I only make $12,000 a year. It's very unlikely, <laughs> you know, that I am over here living in the, the lack of the luxury. luxury, right? Like, even though, you know, we have narratives that have, you know, have tried to, you know, create caricatures, but we know most poor folks in this country work, and they work harder than most of us do mm. every day. They work multiple jobs, multiple shifts, right? And so this notion that people are poor and lazy and just want to get something for free—of course, there is always a percentage of folks who meet any kind of whatever narrative or caricature. But the truth is, is that the, the hardest-working people I find. Are people who are poor and marginalized. So,
1: well, Tasha, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like we just went to church, and uh, yeah. it was uh, we're we're grateful for the work that you do. Thank Tennessee you. is grateful. We're lucky to have you, and I'm I'm yeah. thrilled for you in your new position, and I can't wait to see what you and those crazy Gateses are uh, able to do <laughs> in these next Gates. few years.
0: <laughs> we like
2: that. we're all still working. Yeah. <laughs>
0: No, thank you so much for being here. You said and I think it's the perfect way to end it is you said we will not move forward if we do not move poor people forward in this city. And mm-hmm. I think honestly everything you've spoken to today, your life t- truly just your life. Have you written a book? Like are you going I to? I am going to start like- drafting next year when I turn 50. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I again, if I had the applause button, I would use it. But thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Tasha.
1: All right, Memphis, I hope that uh, this hour of podcast radio uh, inspired you. It certainly has uh, lit a fire under me. I'm thinking about um, all of the complex systems that we need to dismantle and uh, re-put together. So, thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, you might be joining us on WYXR FM radio. Thanks to them for hosting us on Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Uh, we are also available where all great podcasts are uh, are made, are, are sold, are, are given away <laughs> free, and we just beg that you subscribe Please and download.
0: Consume our uh,
1: we, we won't charge you. Um, so yeah, and Christy, if people wanted to find us outside of our Tuesday morning shows, where can they
0: find us yeah guys learn more about new memphis and the work we do we are obviously available on the world wide web at newmemphis.org, but also follow us along for more in response updates as they happen on social you can find us at the new memphis on all four major social platforms that's instagram twitter facebook and linkedin and also guys i want to just put out a call to remember New Memphis is a nonprofit, So while I want you guys to keep up with all the cool, fun things we're doing in the community, I also want you to remember that it takes some a little bit of funding for us to put in the work to do the work we do and to keep uplifting the great leaders of our community who are obviously that you hear on this podcast on Tuesdays, who we put through our leadership development program. So if you are so inclined, no gift is too big or as Anna likes to say, too small, we Every little bit helps, so please consider making a financial contribution to us at newmemphis.org and give us a quick follow, and I think that's a wonderful place to wrap up today, Anna. I've got, I've got work to do after this conversation. I know. it's like, we've, we've got a city to change, so <laughs> thank you, Memphis. We will see you next week. All right, guys. Bye. Bye. This week's episode was made possible by our friends at Independent Bank. You can learn more about them at i online dot com.